For Gabrielle Chanel, reading was a refuge which allowed her to invent her own destiny right from childhood. Literature became a passion she shared with the love of her life, Boy Capel, and her friends like Cocteau Colette, Pierre Riverdi, and Max Jacob. She helped the authors she admired without them knowing. She had the story of her life told by Paul Morand, Louise de Villemorin, and Michel Dion. She read for inspiration and then became an inspiration herself. Watch the film Gabrielle Chanel and Literature at InsideChanel.com. What does it mean to live your life, you know, to come to another crossroads and to keep on walking? Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Currently, through the end of this month, there is a show up at Gallery Lalong in New York called Ficre Gebreesus, Gate to the Blue. And not only is it a tour de force introduction to an astonishing previously unknown artist, it is also the latest chapter in a truly extraordinary love story, the kind of love story you hear about in magical realism. It is also a very sad story about an Eritrean-born painter of great talent and deep humanity who suddenly died from a heart attack at the age of 50. And it's a story that was beautifully told in the Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, The Light of the World, written by his widow, Elizabeth Alexander, who is no slouch herself, a longtime Yale professor who for the past two years has been the president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the nation's largest funder of the arts and humanities. She is arguably the single most eminent figure in American philanthropy today. So who was Fikre Gebreyesus and what animated his dreamlike paintings? Also, who is Elizabeth Alexander and how is she working to change the world? To find out, I am delighted to welcome Elizabeth Alexander on the podcast today. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to be talking with you, Andrew. Thank you. If you can go back to a certain beginning, how did you first meet Fikre? I met Fikre at the crossroads, and I think that it's very important to be attuned to these moments when your life could be about to really, really shift. I had been living in Chicago, teaching at the University of Chicago, was a poet, and I wrote a play, a verse play working with uh, a woman named Leah Gardner, who said that she wanted to help me develop it and she wanted it to be her directing thesis at the Yale School of Drama. And so I decided, crossroads number one, that I would seek a leave from Chicago and spend the semester in New Haven to really be involved with the process of seeing what it meant to uh, turn poetry into something for the stage, to turn a very solitary practice into something that needed to be collaborative because there would be a director and there would be actors and there would be set designers and there would be costumers and there would be people who made music. So off I went to New Haven and went through the hard and fascinating process of making the play and taught for the semester at Yale. And at the very, very end when the play went up, at the time Fikre and his brothers ran a restaurant in New Haven called Cafe Adulis. And he and his wonderful brothers gave us our opening night party. And then a few weeks later, I was sitting in a cafe that uh, was theirs. And I looked up 
And here was this person who said to me very quietly, I saw your play and I would love to talk about it. I was meeting a friend. The friend never appeared. Uh, And the next time I saw her was at a restaurant in New Haven the night I went into labor with my second child. I was like, oh, there you are. A lot's happened since I didn't see you a few years ago. But Fikre and I started talking. I was going back to Chicago in a week, but we started talking and didn't stop. And I extended my stay in New Haven as long as I could. We decided after a week to get married, but told one because we thought it would seem crazy, but we were positively sure that that was what we were supposed to do. And that was that. We made our life together. We had our two sons in quick succession. We settled in New Haven and settled into an extraordinary life together. Can you tell us a little bit more about his life before arriving in the United States, before meeting you? What was his upbringing like? Fikre grew up in Eritrea, in Asmara, in the capital city, and the entire span of his time there and after was marked by the decades-long war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, a war of independence. So he came from a place in the midst of a struggle for self-determination and a war in which everyone, including his family, lost someone. The war took a turn when Mangustu Halimariam became the dictator of Ethiopia and his regime called the Derg brought untold suffering of a different order on the lives of not only Eritreans, but also Ethiopians. So he left as a refugee when he was 16 years old, left on foot for Sudan, then moved to Italy, moved to Germany, and then at the age of 19 to the United States, where he eventually, uh, after a stop in California, landed in New Haven, where he would spend the rest of his life and the longest stretch of his uh, life. Then he also spent some years in New York, (laughs) always doing many things at once, uh, working for his living, usually in multiple restaurant jobs, doing student activist organizing work, and always living a life of curiosity and creativity. So when he was in New York, he marveled uh, at the museums, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where he would go and disappear all day. He found time to study painting at the Art Students League, and that was very important to work also in uh, the great Bob Blackburn's printmaking workshop. And so, you know, a young man of tremendous energy, tremendous purpose, and someone who I think always felt it was fortunate to have the opportunities that he did. So he was always hungry for books, for music, for ideas, art, and righteous politics to be a citizen of his place, but also of the world. He was a really smart political theorist in in the way that he understood political movements and history. And I would often marvel how someone who had experienced that kind of death and fear and suffering was also a person of extraordinary joy who lived life very fully and with deep questing gratitude. So 
What was his painting like? Well, at that time, I would say he probably was doing more drawing and printmaking than he was painting. And then when he moved into painting, the early work was, if you will, set in Eritrea. A lot of it recalled scenes of war, as did some of his photography. A lot of it was very literally a dark palette. A lot of, and this is true of his work always, one of the things I found so fine, so interesting, is that there are figures in it, but they are abstracted. There are landscapes in it, but they are abstracted. So there's always a tether to the real, but a kind of driving sense of shape and color and dreamscape and, and mood. And so his, his palette changed a lot later on, but I would say that that space between abstraction and figure and landscape was always where he was playing. So you, you mentioned how he, he worked at the, the very popular New Haven restaurant, Cafe Dulles, which you once described as serving Eritrean Fantasia foods. And that I think should make anybody hungry because <laughs> I think yes. it sounds delicious. Very, very yummy food. And he and his two brothers, they own the restaurant. How did he progress from being a restaurateur to becoming a full-time painter? Well, you know, he really saw his creativity along a continuum. But once we were together, at that point, the restaurant was very well established and we had had these kids back to back just a year apart. And so, you know, the previous life of um, chefing uh, uh, and closing the kitchen at midnight and painting till dawn was not really tenable anymore. So when our kids were very small, you know, I said, well, like, if painting is really the thing you're going to try to do, let's do it. And so um, he applied to uh, the art school at Yale because the idea was, okay, well, see if you get in. And because if you get in, that'll sort of give you time and, and, and designate that what you're doing in, in this chapter is making art. If he hadn't gotten in, he would have figured out another way to do it. But when he did get in, that meant that he was able to become executive chef, you know, which means you're not in there, you've trained your people and you're not in there uh, cooking every night, but he was devoted to making those paintings. One of the most fascinating points that seemed to come up within the book is whether or not he should sell and show his art. Yes, that was a recurrent point of disagreement. You know, in my own artistic practice, I do understand you've got to get it right. And so clearly I respected and understood that about his practice as well. But when people, when friends, you know, people saw his work, I mean, his work was so powerful and I felt it should live in the world. Um, and he was eerily clear, um, and we can say this in retrospect, that what he needed to be doing was making and not peddling. He thought that self-promotion, that was anathema to him. You know, the business of putting his work out in the world just felt to him constitutionally like not what he was supposed to be doing, almost like bragging about himself instead of, you know, making the thing that others might take pleasure in. He specifically refused people who would, you know, even beg him to buy his work. Did it seem like there was something he was waiting for? 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, I can only look at it now in retrospect. And given that he passed so unexpectedly with no warning whatsoever, uh, and that he left behind a body of work that is so extensive and so complete, I, I, don't, I don't know that he had premonitions of his passing, but I do know that he was positively clear about what he should be spending his time doing, making art, being a good human being, and caring for his family. You, you describe how his early art had a very dark palette. It seemed to tell of his early story. And then as, as time went on, his palette really warmed up and it became very joyous. And, and you have these incredible, um, almost these oneric paintings that you, can, you feel like you can step into them. Um, mm-hmm. How would you say that his, his work evolved over time and what drove that evolution? Well, I love that d- description, and I'm happy that you experience them that way because uh, I do too. You know, I mean, a story that I tell in the book that that feels like such a fikre story is that with the last home that we lived in, which had a very big yard, he was a, quite a gardener uh, and grew vegetables and grew trees and grew flowers and all sorts of things. And And when we were thinking about moving into that house, he sat down on a stump and he said, baby, he said, this is Africa. This is our compound. This is how I feel here. And so I, I think that he he landed safely, you know? I mean, this was someone who grew up in a magic compound but had soldiers break into his home. And so I think, you know, kind of when you stop running and you found your place, Sometimes that aesthetically um, can be tremendously, tremendously freeing. I think also that landing and that safety was, if you will, a place of infinite color. I don't think his later work is just joyful. Uh, and I think of, of paintings where there is that explosion of color, but also you can see spaces where, you know, other darknesses are remembered or are a part of that landscape. What opens up is not just joyful color, but rather incredibly complex color. The power of color itself that is like the driving power of music. I I, I think that that's what he was playing with. But I also think that that sense of landing meant that in his imagination, he was free to do anything he wanted. In 2009, you wrote and recited the poem for President Barack Obama's historic first inauguration called Praise Song for the Day. It includes the line, quote, say it plain that many have died for this day. And you're talking, of course, about the inexpressibly tragic history of the black experience in America that led to Barack Obama's presidency. How did Fikre, as an African by birth, talk about this moment and and experience this moment? That's interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that. I think that um, what was exciting, and I think that I would also say that in the African-American experience, you know, the people who have sacrificed and died, that that all Americans might have certain privileges. I, I, I don't see it as um, fundamentally tragic. I see it as certainly an experience characterized by an enduring freedom struggle, but I also think that African-American culture 
has ironically defined for all of us what it is to be human. Because if you think about the incredible cultural production of people who were defined as three-fifths human beings brought here and lived here for so long as property, but have nonetheless uh, created, you know, a world culture, you know, a culture that as at its best, it has been influential all over the world. That's extraordinary. <laughs> you know, for Fikre, um, he, you know, he was always a black man of the world, an Asmarino, someone from Asmara, an Eritrean, an East African, and he became an African-American. By that, I, I'm just, I'm not referring to citizenship status per se, but rather, you know, he lived as a black man in New Haven, Connecticut for the majority of his his life and was part of that very, very diverse community. So I think that, you know, the moment of Barack Obama's election we have one of his sisters and her family live in, in Kenya. And so it was really wonderful to have um, that uh, exhilaration. How incredible. Fikre's death in April of 2012 of a sudden unforeseen heart attack while he was jogging on his treadmill is something that you write about heart-wrenchingly, viscerally in your book. And, and you impart his tragedy, I think, in a way that few people who read it will ever forget or be able to shake. But how did his death change the course of your life when you at the time were the, the chair of the African-American Studies Department in Yale? How, how did this reshape the trajectory of, of your life? Well, you know, once a mother, always a mother. And once my children were born... That was clearly my primary responsibility. But when their father died, even to say the word responsibility took on a whole different depth and and meaning instantaneously. So I, I think that also what that meant was in addition to just caring for them and like literally feeding them and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, I thought, you know, our lives didn't end. And it was tragic that we lost Fikre, but he had lived so many lives. He had survived so many things. And so what does it mean to live your life, you know, to come to another crossroads and to keep on walking? So a year after I moved us to New York City, which when I presented my children with this, that was very, very, very hard because, of course, inherently, they didn't want to leave the life that they had. But I knew that it was something that we needed to do to not reinvent ourselves from scratch, but to show that we could be open to life changing and that we could find something positive in a different place. And so I think that then from there, you know, there were different career shifts that that opened up. And so I think for me to do some very, very new things showed my kids that life is on the other side and you have to see what it is. So when you moved to New York, life changed for you in a very marked way where you took up a professorship at Columbia University And then in 2016, Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, came to you with the opportunity to dramatically transform your career. 
How did you come to be the director of creativity and free expression at the Ford Foundation, which is a a $13.7 billion philanthropic powerhouse? And what did that job entail? Well, I should say that the big thing that happened before that was that I wrote that memoir. And, And I mentioned that because I would not have imagined I would have shared my life in that way, but to have, rather than suppressed it, to have leaned into writing that book and then finding in, in, in the book that it was meaningful to a lot of people. Writing that felt braver and harder than, than actually going to work at the Ford Foundation. <laughs> but, um, you know, look, Darren Walker, he saw in someone who was chairing an interdisciplinary department, who was building community, who was working in the arts community as well, who understood something about institutions and how to maximize them and and move them in as best I could from where I sat in a positive uh, and sort of social justice direction. He saw all of that in my work. I never never would have guessed, I never would have dreamed, but I I thought that I I just had to, to take this opportunity and it turned out I was good at it. And it turned out that there was so much growing that I was able to do outside of a university context if given the opportunity. In 2017, you worked with the art collector Agnes Gund to design the Art for Justice Fund, the $100 million charity that she kickstarted by selling Roy Lichtenstein's masterpiece off her own living room wall. The fund was dedicated to reducing mass incarceration and pushing through prison reform long before the conversation went mainstream, really, this year. Why did you choose to focus such philanthropic heft on prisons? Aggie Gund is such an extraordinary person. She and Darren Walker had a, a have a long and profound friendship where she learned so much from him with the work that he was doing long ago, talking about and working at Ford uh, on criminal justice reform issues. I think what was, was so uh, powerful for me about that was, first of all, to see somebody put unattributed money to use, a painting on a wall, one painting. What can that do in the world? What does it mean for someone of tremendous wealth to say, I don't need everything I have. You know, I I, I want this wealth to improve our society. And, and I want to learn deeply while I do this work. You know, in, in philanthropy, even in, as we call it, big philanthropy, Ford, Mellon, these you know, are tremendously endowed places. But what you learn very, very quickly is that uh, there's never enough money in any one institution. So, you know, when you think about putting resources to work that are, are private and otherwise not going to the kinds of society building efforts that we, we, we work on in philanthropy, the opportunity was just a pretty amazing one, an important model, I think, for um, what philanthropy needs to really be effective. I think that also, and that my part of the co-design was thinking about funding in culture that would help people to create empathy, literally empathy, feeling with what it means Mm -hmm. to step into the life uh, of someone else. You know, this just comes back to who I am and what I have been stirred by my whole life, not just the visual arts, but art in general. What else can make you feel 
cry, laugh, act. Art can do that. And so being able to work together with also supporting people who are in hardcore criminal justice reform was a huge learning time for me and a privilege. Wow. So how did you come to transition from the Ford Foundation after this huge achievement to taking over this multi-billion dollar foundation, the Mellon Foundation? I was asked to apply for the position. Uh, People saw the work that I had been doing and I thought I was going to go back to teaching. The further I got into the process and as I talked with people on the board who were interviewing me uh, and I said, well, if you wanted me to do this, you know, we really need to take this great work, but sharpen the lens so that all of our work passes through a social justice lens, not a litmus test, but how are we thinking about really in a focused way contributing to a more fair and just society? And I thought, hmm, I really did love that Ford work. And the only piece that wasn't there that was a a lifelong commitment of mine was higher education. And here was Mellon, which had uh, arts, culture, humanity, and uh, humanities in higher ed, the world I'd been in my whole uh, adult life. So it seemed that, again, as a crossroads, that I really was supposed to be doing this that this was the institution where I really could contribute something and also learn and grow and have responsibility for leading a community, as well as putting forward ideas into the world in our grant making with clarity. I've just felt incredibly fortunate um, to have had this opportunity, but um, I'm also glad that I took the opportunity. Which takes us back to Fikre. You know, one of the things uh, that Fikre said with a kind of dark laugh, uh, we would talk about this, he'd say, I don't want the kids to be refugees. And I'd say, good, neither do I. But he said, um, but I want them to have that resilience. I want them to know they can reinvent themselves. I want them to be survivors and know that in themselves. And so that's what I've tried to model as well. Speaking of reinvention, since you arrived at the Mellon Foundation, you've made some staggeringly impactful moves. You pledged to give $500 million in aid to arts and humanities organizations, including a $10 million fund that gives out $5,000 individual grants to artists. And then just in June, you really announced to the world this reorientation of the foundation towards social justice coming in the middle of this very chaotic, uncanny year. Um, What is the role that art plays in social justice? Well, I think that art has superpowers. I think you called it uncanny this year that we're going through for so many reasons, and it's more than this year, but like, wowza, we are living in a time. And I feel dependent on the artists, on the writers, um, on the scholars as well, to help us understand what we have been going through, what we have been living through. We won't understand it if we don't have that. And and I don't mean in a very literal way, but I think that it's the arts that have the capacity, sometimes completely abstractly, to capture 
humanity to capture the soul. And as we discussed earlier, in a non-directive and manipulative way, actually allow people to feel, to know, to experience. It's a very, very, very unique power. To go back to Fikre, it's amazing that in this chaotic year, he's receiving his first major show at Gallery Lelong, which is a highly respected art gallery that works with artists like Etel Adnan, Andy Goldsworthy, Yoko Ono, the estate of Anna Mendieta, all these lyrical artists. How do you see this this show? I mean, because it, it is something that was obviously a long time in the works, a long time gestating, and now it's coming in this very specific particular time. Well, you know, isn't it extraordinary that it's happening now? I mean, the first layer is that he died eight years ago and uh, he left behind almost a thousand paintings. He left countless photographs, countless works on paper, you know, a a life's body of extraordinary, uh, extraordinary work. And that work would ultimately need art professionals to shepherd it, to care for it, to make sure it's safe, to love it, to speak for it, to know it, to believe in it, and to help bring it to the world. So, you know, it's been pretty amazing because, of course, they bring reputation, they bring expertise, knowledge, and to be working and talking with them to think about and reflect on this whole body of work has been uh, and continues to be uh, just a privilege, a joy, a learning opportunity, and also a profound exhalation for me to, to say, okay, like I got it in the hands of the people who will take care of it as professionals. <laughs> we had the opening planned for April and that was Exciting and, and wonderful and to imagine the dinner afterwards and, you know, it would have had dancing and music and being close together and that could not happen. But miraculously, to have an opening over Zoom, which meant that this human of the globe could have, as we did, people from all over the globe, the wow. contents he touched experiencing the work that way and that it would also happen just at the moment when things were opening up in in New York so that people also who can get to New York can see it in person. That seems like the best of all worlds. You know, I feel like, okay, that gift in the middle of such profound disruption seems like very, very profoundly serendipitously well-timed. How do you think he would feel about this moment, having kept his work, you know, kind of private and in incubation? I think that I know that he would be tremendously proud of my vigilance. I think he would be tremendously proud for his sons to see people being so moved by his work. He was very proud of of being Eritrean. And so I think that uh, as a rare person for his generation of Eritreans to have made his way as an artist, I know he would be very proud about that. We were very, very, very intertwined in our work and in making our work. And so 
I don't think he was just holding out because he was shy. I think he really was trying to get somewhere. And I think that had he lived, he would have gotten to the place where he felt like, okay, it's time to share. I think this has just been such a pleasure to talk to you about about your husband's work, about about your extraordinary work. And I just want to thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle this week. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, the depth of your questions and heart in this conversation. So thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.